This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Good morning. Today our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. It can be found on page 810 in your Black Pew Bible. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here. I'm really happy to be with you on this beautiful fall morning. It's amazing outside. Um, Hey, before we get into Matthew 5, keep on going in the Sermon on the Mount, a couple quick announcements. The first is we are uh, conducting our DNA class this Saturday from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock. What is DNA? Uh, If you are new here or if you've been around for a while and interested in what it looks like to kind of take the next step towards membership, our DNA class is where we just try to put everything on the table about who we are as a church. Uh, What's our story? How did we get here? What do we believe? What do we value? What do we want to be pursuing together? And what does it look like for you to join our church as a member? We do value membership at Redeemer, uh, and we don't think about membership as um, kind of like exclusive access to club benefits, uh, because if that was it, it's pretty lame. It's a pretty lame club. Um, more, more so, uh, we think about membership um, as actively covenanting and participating in the life of this community. Uh, so there are a lot of amazing churches out there. Um, maybe Redeemer is the place for you to plant roots. Maybe it's another church. Um, but we want you, if you're here, to ask a question, hey, what does it look like for me to be a full participant uh, in this community? What does it mean for me to take responsibility, not just for my own formation and discipleship, but also for the formation and the discipleship of the person sitting in the pew next to me? Um, so that's what we kind of try to cover in our DNA class. Would love to see you there. Uh, We do ask that you register for it online. Uh, You can do that through the Church Center app if you have it or through the events page on our website. Uh, We're going to have a lunch and then if you have uh, kids, we'll have childcare. Um, So if you are planning on bringing your kids, uh, please let us know as soon as possible so we can make sure that we have full childcare arrangements in place. Announcement number two, uh, October 30th, uh, we're going to have a trunk or treat here at four o'clock, which is going to be a lot of fun. We'll uh, decorate the parking lot over there in Luther. We'll have a lot of candy to hand out. Invite your friends. Uh, We're hoping that the neighborhood can uh, participate in it. Would love to see you show up. There are a ton of ways that you can help participate in this. Uh, We'll have a candy drop-off out in the lobby for the next few weeks if you want to bring some sugar that we can hand out to kids to make them crazy right before bedtime. Um, We're also going to be having chili and hot dogs. So if you make a mean chili um, and want to share it with the rest of us, Feel free. We would, I would love to try your chili. Um, so you, again, look at uh, the Church Center app. Look at our website. You can find out more information about that. Hope to see you there October 30th, 4 o'clock. So that's it. Uh, let's pray, and then we will get into Matthew 5. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you care enough about us to confront us with realities that are in all of our hearts. Um, You speak to every single one of us in this room in ways that I can't, that none of us are capable of doing. Um, So, Lord Jesus, may your word be clear. 
Will you make us more like you? Will you help us to love genuinely? Will you help us to follow you in uh, obedience? And God, open our eyes. Uh, We need to see you. No matter where we're coming from, we need to see you. Um, So Lord Jesus, will you be present? In your name I pray, amen. All right, so we are continuing our series in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. We started a few weeks ago and we're gonna be in it for the rest of the year. If you aren't familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it is Jesus's most comprehensive teaching of what life in the kingdom of God looks like. If you're wondering what does life under the rule of Jesus look like, Jesus lays it all out here in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us the values for his kingdom. He warns us against the dangers that are present in our own hearts and in our world that stand in the way of his life, his reign, his holiness being fully expressed in the world. And he ends by promising that if we hear the words that he has to say and respond to them and do them, our lives are going to be like a house that is built on a firm foundation that can weather different storms and hold fast. And Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. He starts by kind of laying out the value system in his kingdom. Think about it this way. Every single politician, when they are running for office, is going to give you a list of what he or she is going to accomplish while they're in office. They're going to say, when I am in power, um, your town, your community is going to look like this. We are going to value this. We are going to create opportunity for this. We all like have this intuitive sense that things aren't quite the way that they're supposed to be, and we need something or someone to show us the way to show us what it looks like to live. Our politicians make promises all the time about how they're going to do that. What Jesus is doing, Jesus isn't a politician. He's not going to ask you for uh, money or for your vote. What he's going to do is say, hey, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. When my kingdom is present, here are the values, here are the markers that are going to let you know that you are living in that kingdom. And he says the presence and the growth of these values, of the Beatitudes, is what discipleship looks like. If you're wondering what does it look like to follow Jesus, if you're wondering, hey, how do I know if I'm on the right track, it looks like the spirit of the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mercy, hungry and thirsting after righteousness, peacemaking, it looks like that. And Jesus says, this is what real greatness, real significance in the kingdom of God looks like. Greatness in God's kingdom doesn't look like a massive platform. It doesn't look like massive influence or control, greatness to be great in the kingdom of God is to live a life that is participating in the grace of God and seeing these beatitudes cultivated inside of you. So that's what Jesus has been talking about up until this point. Our section today is a turning point. It's a transition from kind of the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, into his first point. So after laying out these uh, virtues, these markers of the kingdom of God, uh, he's going to answer the question of like, okay, um, Jesus, you say you're bringing the kingdom. You say this is what the kingdom looks like. My life does not look like this. So there's something that is standing in the way of the kingdom of God being fully expressed in our world and in our lives. And so Jesus highlights six particular sins that have to be actively resisted in pursuing life in the kingdom of God. And each of these strongholds, um, what Jesus is doing is less pointing out there and more holding up a mirror and saying, hey, these are strongholds that are inside every single person who has ever lived. It's inside of you. It's inside of me. And to see the values of the kingdom of God 
uh, cultivated in our own lives, in our own church. They have to be resisted, and another way has to be pursued. And these six strongholds that Jesus is going to be talking about that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks are anger, lust, a disregard for marriage and the marriage covenant, deception, revenge, and hatred. And Jesus is going to do surprising things and show us and expose how our tendency, like these things are inside of all of us. It's not just out there. It is in here. And the first stronghold that Jesus is going to introduce us to, what we're going to look at today, is anger. If the Beatitudes represent the value system of the kingdom of God, Jesus says that anger represents the power of murder, the spirit of murder. And if the kingdom of God, if the Beatitudes build up towards life and flourishing, anger tears down, destroys, alienates, and splits even the closest of relationships. And, and I think when, when, um, when I say anger, I have something in mind, right? I have something inside of my gut of what that feels like. Maybe you've had an experience in your life where you got so angry. Maybe you've uh, had experience in your life where you've been the recipient of anger. And that's the thing that you point at to define what anger means. What Jesus does, though, he doesn't just say, talk about out of control, rage, yelling, screaming. When Jesus talks about anger, he's talking about insulting people. He's talking about showing contempt for people. He's talking about nurturing and cultivating annoyance inside of your heart. It's the small things that we experience every single day inside of all of us. He's not going to let us off the hook by just talking about explosive, out-of-control rage. Jesus is going to say that setting yourself up as superior or more valuable than another person, defining another person by their weaknesses or their failures, is the spirit of murder. And it's antithetical to the way of Jesus and stands in the way of us walking and following in his ways. And Jesus says its end is literally hell. So uh, for us to understand Jesus' teaching here on anger, um, I, wa- I want to do a couple things today. I want to zoom out a little bit and just look at um, this next section where Jesus is going to be dealing with these strongholds. How do we make sense of it? What do we need to keep in mind uh, for the next few weeks as we walk through them? Uh, And then I want to zoom in specifically and talk about um, anger. So a little bit of context. Right now, Jesus is talking about um, manifesting a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are the scribes and the Pharisees? If you've read the Jesus Storybook Bible, they are the super holy, awesome people who never do anything wrong. They're the standard for what righteousness looked like in Jesus's day. And Jesus says, hey, I, I, I came to actually um, bring a greater righteousness than that, a different kind of righteousness. And he's going to say, hey, I'm not doing that in a way that completely gets rid of everything that came before. He's saying, hey, don't think that I came to get rid of the Old Testament, to get rid of what God has revealed beforehand. I'm not saying, hey, that is completely obsolete now. We're done with that. Here's something that's completely new and different. No, what he's going to say is that I am everything that the Old Testament has been looking to and building towards. All of the promises of God, all of the plans of God to rescue and redeem the world, to bring people back into right relationship with him, to heal what has been broken, to put right uh, what has gone wrong, stands on Jesus. He is the one who is going to bring in the kingdom. He's the cornerstone upon which all of the promises and plans of God stand. And Jesus says, as I go through my life, as I bring the kingdom, as I go to the cross, as I, raise, uh, as I uh, am resurrected from the dead, I'm actually going to bring a greater kind of lasting righteousness that can do things that the law could never do on its own. Don't think I came to just get rid of the law. I actually came to do what the law can never do and bring people back into uh, re- right relationship with God and experience true righteousness. And the result of that, Jesus says, is 
an invitation into participating in the very life of God, walking in deep relationship with him, knowing what he knows, seeing what he sees, loving what he loves, and living it in a way that imitates who God is. That's everything that Jesus is going to do. He's going to accomplish all of that. He's going to bring people into that kingdom. And then as they are in that kingdom, he's going to warn us about strongholds, again, sins that are standing in our way of fully realizing that. And so Jesus gives us these six strongholds, anger, lust, divorce, all of that that we're going to follow, so that we can actively participate in the grace that he's given us and live in a way that is different. And the entire section uh, is going to culminate in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Um, so, so look there, after, after running through all of these strongholds, the point of all of this, Jesus says, after he um, finishes by talking about loving your enemies instead of hating them, is you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you, you, you hear the word perfect and you might think, um, like, making no mistakes, being completely uh, blameless. That's not quite what Jesus is talking about. Uh, Perfect is kind of a bad translation of that word. What he's more saying is that you must be whole as your father is whole. You must be in alignment with your father as he's brought you into his kingdom. It's an invitation into experiencing the blessing, the wholeness of living under the grace of Jesus in the kingdom of God. So as we um, kind of examine all of these strongholds, here are three things that I want you to keep in mind as we go through. Number one, sin is not neutral. Sin is not neutral. Jesus is not going to give us the option to wiggle our way out of something and say that, Things really aren't as bad as you say they are, Jesus. Um, I, I really don't have that inside of me. I, I don't need to deal with that. No, he's, he's going to say that the reality of sin inside of all of our hearts is like a poison that is trying to destroy you. Sin is not a neutral, small thing that is indifferent to who you are. It's actually a power that wants you and wants to destroy and break apart everything that God loves in the world. And so Jesus is going to give us ways to resist it by his grace and to live in another way. Sin is not neutral. Number two, God's commandments, Jesus's way is the path to joy. God's commandments and walking in the way of Jesus is to walk the path of joy. And remember, Jesus starts out this entire teaching by telling us who is blessed. What does it look like to be a blessed person? That word there talks about um, wholeness, flourishing, living in alignment with the way that things are supposed to be. And Jesus's invitation here, his commands, because he gives strong commands, He says, hey, in resisting sin, like cut off your hand if it's standing in the way. Do things that are completely unreasonable. Why? Because sin wants to destroy you and the path of Jesus, the way that he's going to set out, is the true path for flourishing, for wholeness, for being fully human in the world. Sin wants to dehumanize. Jesus came to bring us back to God and make us fully human again, the way that we were supposed to be. Sin is not neutral. God's commandments, the way of Jesus, is the path for joy. And number three, pursuing wholehearted obedience in these areas reinforces and cultivates the eight Beatitudes inside of us. Pursuing wholehearted obedience in these areas reinforces and cultivates the eight beatitudes inside of us. What what does that mean? As Jesus holds up the mirror to you, as he invites you to look inside of your own heart, it's going to 
if it has the intended effect, reveal to you that you actually are poor in spirit. That the anger inside of you is actually a bigger deal than you realize it is. And you actually don't have the right techniques or the right strategy to get rid of it on your own. You're completely dependent on God. You're completely dependent on the grace of God. So as we follow in accordance with God's ways, as we pursue obedience, we're, we're quickly confronted with our, with our own poverty, with our own need for grace, which then Jesus says actually lets us experience grace and actually experience the blessing, the wholeness, the flourishing that comes from living in his kingdom. And Jesus's assumption is that if you're in the kingdom of God, you're going to walk in these ways. Salt is salty, Jesus says. Light is light. Those who are in the kingdom of God pursue wholehearted obedience and recognize their need for grace. So that's why Jesus is bringing us uh, these six strongholds. He's wanting to show us the destructive power that's inside of all of us, um, that destroys us, that destroys relationships. And he's going to show us a better way of living in his kingdom. So with all of that in mind, uh, let's, let's turn to this, uh, our passage actually for today and talk about anger. Uh, look down with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's pretty standard, right? Um, it makes sense. Murder is bad. You shouldn't kill people. That's in the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying anything revolutionary here. But this is what he's going to do. But, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus starts by pointing to this Old Testament prohibition on anger. And he says, you've heard it said, you've read your Bibles, you've listened to your teachers, you know the law, you should not murder. But he's not going to contrast and say, hey, I have something completely new for you that gets rid of that old law. He's saying, hey, what what I'm going to do is actually say, God cares that we don't kill people, but God is just as concerned and passionate about the attitudes and the motivations that drive people to kill as he is about the actual physical act of murder. Does that make sense? He's going to look at it and say, here's this principle. What I want to say to you is that greater righteousness looks like paying attention to everything that is underneath of that and eventually leads to that. He's wanting people to see that God's heart and desire for us, for humanity, is to be free from the destructive cycles of anger that can so easily grab hold of us, trap us, and if we're not careful, will eventually lead us to murder. Maybe not physically, but in our own hearts, certainly, growing in hatred towards people, which will kill relationships, which will drive people apart, which will split friendships. And again, um, there are a lot of stages to anger. Anger is not just rage. Anger can begin with annoyance. Notice Jesus, Jesus says, hey, whoever is angry uh, with his brother is going to be liable to judgment. Then he follows it up with two examples that seem pretty benign. He's, whoever insults his brother, whoever calls his brother a fool, that's actually what anger looks like. So anger starts with being annoyed with something. And like, there are so many reasons to be annoyed, right? Uh, we, we live in proximity with people. People can be really frustrating. People can be really maddening. And what Jesus, Jesus is saying is, hey, when that grabs hold of your heart, and you fixate on the annoyance inside of you, that, that builds up to something. That's going to start manifesting itself in sarcasm, in biting humor. It's going to uh, lead to you venting to your friends 
about how frustrating, how annoying this thing is that this person does over and over. It's going to lead you to brooding and just like mulling over, over and over again. Like, I cannot believe she did that. I can't believe he said that. And that gets deeper and deeper and deeper inside of our hearts. And eventually, Jesus says, leads to hell. The anger that Jesus is talking about in this passage looks way more like manipulation, looks way more like showing contempt for people around you than it does massive fits of yelling or hitting or rage. What is contempt? Contempt is elevating yourself to a position of superiority over a person and defining the other person by their weaknesses, by their failings, and by the things that annoy you about them. So eventually that person doesn't, uh, isn't a person made in the image of God. Eventually that person is just that annoying tendency they have, or it's just the weakness that they have. And Jesus is going to say, hey, do you see what the end of that looks like? If you play that cycle out over a period of years, what does that do? Does that lead to life? Does that lead to flourishing? Does that cultivate the righteousness that God is looking for? Does that cultivate the life that you are looking for? He says, no, the the end of that cycle, if it is unchecked, is murder and it's hell. And um, the people who would have been hearing Jesus uh, would have been familiar uh, with, with this idea. The Old Testament is full of stories about how unchecked anger leads to really devastating consequences. Uh, turn, turn your Bibles uh, back to the very, very beginning. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. So in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you see this uh, picture of God creating the world. It's good, it's full of flourishing, there is peace, there's harmony, and it's all undone when uh, Adam and Eve, this first human pair, um, rebel against God. They choose not to take him at his word, they choose to try to do things their own way, and after that, everything falls apart. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, who are Adam and Eve's first sons. Uh, They're working in the field. Cain is a worker of the ground. He's a farmer. Uh, Abel uh, watches over livestock. And it comes uh, to this point, we don't know a ton of details. Cain and Abel come and offer a sacrifice to God from the work uh, that they've done. For some reason, Cain's offering is rejected and Abel's is accepted. And Cain cannot get over this. So uh, look in the middle of verse four, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, hey, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? That is brooding on, like being unable to let go of this perceived injustice that you've experienced or the ways that you have fallen short. He cannot let go of it. If you do well, God says, Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, if you continue down this path that you are on, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God is giving Cain this warning. He's saying, hey, the the path that you are on right now is not neutral. You are opening yourself up to the destructive influence and power of sin, which does not care about you. It wants to master and rule over you. And if you do not stand against it, if you do not act in a way that is opposite, it's going to take you. And what what happens? Cain disregards what God has to say. He chooses to continue brooding. He continues to uh, go down the path of his own anger and eventually ends up killing his brother, Abel. So there's this um, path from disappointment, unmet expectation, anger, brooding, murder. That's really extreme, right? Probably not a lot of us in this uh, room are going to follow that exact same path, but turn over to James chapter four, complete other side of your Bible. 
I don't know what page it's on in your pew Bible because I have a different Bible than you guys do today. But in James chapter four, uh, James is talking to uh, people in a church and he raises this hypothetical question for them, uh, which is a good question. Uh, James chapter four, verse one. He says, hey, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's a great question. Do you ever find yourself in the middle of conflict and you're like, how did we get here? Like what... What, what was it that led us to this place where like we were okay and then all of a sudden like it just feels like there's this wedge between us that cannot be moved? And James says, hey, isn't, isn't it this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so James is setting up um, this pattern. What causes fighting? What causes quarreling inside of us? What leads to this destructive pattern of relational fallout? It is we have something inside of us that we want. And we're not getting it for some reason. Unmet expectations, a failure on the part of the other person, and we just dwell on that. We can't move beyond it. And as we do that, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper inside of us, and the gulf and the wedge relationally gets wider and wider and wider. Unchecked anger, anger that just keeps on growing. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say it's unjustified anger. Jesus knows, just like you know, there are a lot of really good reasons to be angry. You have plenty of cause to be upset about things that you are experiencing in your life. Jesus isn't going to give you the easy out by saying, well, I know I'm angry. I know I'm holding on to this, but here are all the reasons that I'm holding on to this. Well, that's a really compelling argument. Do you know what the end of that is? The end of that is brokenness, isolation, destruction, death, and hell. Jesus wants to show us that unchecked, unrestrained anger, no matter what its source, will eventually destroy whatever whatever is in its path. And it might do that in big, really dramatic ways, or it might do that in small, drifting, quiet ways where suddenly... You're this far apart from each other and can't figure out for the life of you how you got there. And you might be listening to this and thinking, well, aren't, aren't there like proper, healthy ways to be angry? And the answer is yes. Uh, the Bible says, hey, be angry. Don't sin. The problem is we, we, we a lot of times can look at that and be like, well, okay, see, like I'm angry. I don't, I don't think I'm sinning, so I'm just gonna keep on doing this. What Jesus wants you to do is to question yourself more. What Jesus wants you to do is to look again and say, man, am I angry in the way that God is angry? How is God angry? The Bible says God is slow to anger, quick to mercy, quick to forgive. He desires to forgive before showing wrath. In your anger, have you followed that path? Have you been slow? Have you been patient? Have you been forgiving? maybe even unreasonably forgiving. There's, we, we all have this tendency inside of us to self-justify everything that we do, to hold on, to show, no, I have legitimate reasons for doing this. Maybe you do. What's the end of that? How's that working out? And Jesus says, hey, instead of holding on to it, instead of nursing it, instead of trying to get rid of it by venting, to your close friends or venting in whatever avenue you have, there's another way. And Jesus gives us four truths about anger in this passage that can help us to overcome it. And again, it's partnering with his grace. It's by his grace that we do this. Um, Truth number one in this passage, unchecked anger is always in danger of the judgment both in the courts of men and the court of God. Unchecked anger is always in danger of judgment, both from men and from God. Look again at verse 22. Jesus says, hey, I say to you, 
Everyone who is angry with his brother is going to be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And from what I can tell, this should make us a little bit nervous because um, I think we're living in a world right now where it's way more easy to be angry than not angry. There is a study that came out um, in the United States recently, polled um, U.S. adults, uh, and they were trying to find out what impact the pandemic had on kind of social, emotional, interpersonal traits. Uh, and, and what they found is that um, since the beginning of the pandemic, sympathy, kindness, um, compassion, openness to new people, perspectives, ideas has just like plummeted. And there's a good reason for that. Last few years have been crazy. We're stressed. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty um, health-wise. There's a lot of uncertainty politically. And so when we find ourselves in that situation, um, it is not easy to be compassionate. It is not easy to be kind. It is easy to be cynical. It is easy to be angry and to just keep walking down that road, which is why it's not surprising that another study shows that road rage incidents are at an all-time high right now. We're living in a world that is increasingly stressed, increasingly frayed, increasingly angry, and the end results of that are just pulling people, places, relationships apart, which is exactly what Jesus says is going to happen. You might have a lot of reasons to be angry. It might be easier to be angry than to forgive and show compassion. Jesus' warning is still the same. If you keep going down that road, it ends in hell. Truth number two, anyone who speaks or acts in anger is in danger because of the escalating nature of its consequences. So not just we're in danger because of judgment, whoever speaks or acts in it Um, there are escalating consequences for judgment. Look at um, the progression in verse 22. If you're angry, you're liable to judgment. That's just broad, generic, interpersonal, right? Which makes sense. If you're angry, if you have uh, conflict, there's going to be fallout in your relational circles, whether that's in your marriage, in your family, in your friend groups. When we act in a certain way, we receive judgment. And when people act in a certain way, we judge them. That's just kind of the way that the world works. So Jesus says, hey, if you're angry, You're going to be liable to that judgment. Makes sense. But if you continue on that path, Jesus says, if you uh, insult your brother, there's actually legal consequences for that, which again, makes sense. Sometimes uh, conflict can get so intense that police are called, the court system is brought in, and Jesus says, hey, if you go down that path, there's a Sanhedrin and there's a council that is waiting to deliver judgment to you. And then he steps it, he gives it another one up and he says, and if you keep on going, then after that, there's actually a divine judgment that's waiting. God is not indifferent to the consequences and to the fallout of anger. He will judge it. And again, I want you not to forget that what Jesus is talking about here are the things that we all struggle with every single day. Jesus is talking about contempt. I was talking to Wyatt earlier this week uh, kind of about this passage, about this sermon, and it really kind of blew my mind. I was like, man, he's not just talking about like, you know, being furious and angry all the time. He's talking about holding on to contempt. He's talking about viewing that person in your relationship mainly by their failings and not giving a rip about anything that they say. And and Wyatt said, oh yeah, like there's been been research, Dr. John Gottman, which if you want to know who Dr. John Gottman is, ask Wyatt, because I do not know. But Apparently he's wise. Uh, He's done studies in uh, divorce all over the place. And he says the number one indicator for divorce is if spouses show contempt for each other. So it's not just acts of unfaithfulness. It's not just acts of massive abuse that are uh, blinking red indicators of divorce. It's, hey, are you more annoyed by your spouse than not? Do you look at your spouse through the lens of their failings or the ways that they have not held up their end of the bargain for you. And you can tell, um, that's fun. You can tell, you can tell that's happening if you find yourself saying things like, well, he always does this or she never 
follows through here. If that's the spirit that you're viewing other people through, you're in a dangerous spot. And here's the, here's the kicker. It's easiest to treat people who are closest to us like that. Because we have plenty of opportunities to see all the ways that we fail and fall short every single day. So Jesus is warning, hey, you might have really good cause to show contempt for this person. They might have really, really, really failed you. Do you know what the end of holding on to that is? It is not life. It is not flourishing. It is destruction. So truth number three, when we see anger in our lives, we must act in the opposite spirit with urgency. If Jesus holds up the mirror to you and you see this, what he's saying is, hey, do not just keep going the way that you're going. Do something about it. Look down with me at chapter or verse 23. So If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is the so what. Jesus is saying, if I've held up the mirror to you and you recognize something inside of yourself that I'm talking about, what are you supposed to do? If you realize, oh my goodness, I've actually done that to that person. They have something. It's not anything. It's specific. Hey, I failed in this way. I, ha- I have um, act- treated you with contempt and anger. Jesus says, drop everything and try to go make that right first. And the example he gives is offering a sacrifice in the temple, uh, which in ancient Israel in Jesus' time, uh, there are high holy days and festivals where everyone in Israel is supposed to go up to the temple. It's a multiple day journey. It's super inconvenient. You leave your home, you're walking, you're camping out. You go there. When you get to Jerusalem to go offer your gift, you're standing in line for hours, maybe days for your opportunity to come offer this sacrifice, which by the way, God told you to give. You're there because you're trying to do what God told you to do. And Jesus says, hey, if you get to the very end of that, if you've walked for two days, if you stood in line for 12 hours, it's your turn to offer your sacrifice at the altar. And you realize, oh my gosh, this person has something against me. You you leave it there and you go back home and you deal with it. Which would have been totally backwards from the way of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and the Pharisees thought that everything that was wrong in Israel was the fact that uh, people were placing too much emphasis on social relationships and not enough on proper worship of God. So if you're a Pharisee, what do you do? Oh my God, you stay at the altar. That's the most important thing. And what Jesus is saying that reconciliation with your brother is a greater act of worship. So go, be reconciled and forgive. When we see anger in our lives, we must act in the opposite spirit with urgency, even maybe especially when it's inconvenient. And truth number four, without repentance, we will pay the full price of our anger. Look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Anger traps us. It's a cycle that we can't get out of. It's something that consumes. And Jesus says without repentance, without intentional turning away and pursuing a different road, you will never get out until you've paid the last thing that you, know, uh, that you owe for the price of your anger, which you can never pay enough. Because if anger is the spirit of murder, like how do you pay for murdering someone? How do you pay for murdering someone in your heart? That's something that, it's a debt that we cannot escape on our own. So, without repentance, we will pay the full death debt. What does it look like to repent? 
I think that repentance looks like three things. Number one, it looks like embracing poverty of spirit. Because you cannot be contemptuous towards someone if you're actually convinced that you're poor in spirit. If you're actually convinced that you don't have what it takes, that there is not some inherent superiority inside of you that elevates you above someone else. Repentance looks like embracing poverty of spirit. It looks like embracing the grace of God. It looks like saying, oh my gosh, I do not have what it takes. I have made a mess of it. Maybe they started it, but I have continued it and I've made a mess of it. God, I need you. I need your grace. I am completely dependent on you. Step number two looks like pursuing reconciliation, even now, maybe even before this service is over. Maybe you're here with uh, your spouse. Maybe you're here with your parent and you realize, oh my gosh, I have been harboring contempt towards you. I've been looking at you uh, through your failings. I have been elevating myself over you. I've been preferring my own way over you. Maybe right now, before you take communion, you apologize. And you go and say, hey, I am sorry. I have treated you with contempt. I have been angry. I've been annoyed. I don't want to live that way anymore. Will you forgive me? And then, if you're the person who receives that apology, Jesus wants you to extend forgiveness because you've found forgiveness and grace in him. We embrace poverty of spirit. We repent even right now. And in a world that is cynical, we practice the way of love. When I talk about the way of love, uh, I mean love the way that Jesus talks about it, the way that the Bible talks about it. What would it look like if instead of participating in cynicism and sarcasm or focusing on the failures of other people, we lived in a different way. What if we uh, pursued this way of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, love doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. What does love do when it's annoyed? Like it forgives and it moves on and it doesn't resent and it doesn't dwell on it. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What would it look like if in your marriage or in your closest friendships, you chose to live by those words. When you're annoyed and you have reason to be, what if you endured it and bore it? What if instead of wanting to believe the worst about another person, you believed all things for them? What if you hoped all things for them, even before their behavior changes? What if you chose to respond in that spirit instead of playing out the anger dance of letting your annoyance grow to resentment, which grows to contempt, which grows to anger, which leads to fracture, which leads to isolation. The way that Jesus is calling us into is a way of flourishing, a way of wholeness, a way of forgiveness that is purchased by his blood. Because if you cannot pay the price for your anger, Jesus can, and Jesus did. On the cross, with his own body, he inaugurates his kingdom, and he invites us into this way of living before him through his spirit. So the way that we're going to um, close, uh, close the service down, we're going to uh, take communion. I want you to use this as a time to respond to Jesus. If you see inside of yourself the kind of cynicism or anger or contempt that Jesus is talking about, do business with that. Embrace your poverty of spirit. Embrace the grace that Jesus offers to you right now and ask him for a place in his kingdom. Say, hey, I don't want to follow that path anymore. 
I want to be marked by the Beatitudes. I want to live in alignment with the kingdom of God and then come to the table and practice poverty of spirit, practice saying, I have nothing to offer. All that I have is grace through Jesus Christ. And if you're a person here who's maybe been the recipient of unjust anger, like you feel ways that another person's anger um, has hurt you, destroyed things that you love. We have people uh, over here who would love to, love to pray for you, who would love to ask God to heal, to bring restoration, to bring reconciliation, um, and, to bring mercy, and to bring mercy. So man, if, if, if you're hurting, if you've experienced anger, like we would love to pray, pray with you. We would love to pray for you. Don't leave without getting prayed, uh, prayed for. Um, the way that we practice communion at Redeemer is we will all come towards the front. Uh, We will have three stations uh, down here, uh, one station up in the balcony. The two stations in the middle are going to be a loaf of bread. You will tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup. The stoneware is wine. The glass is juice. We also have a single-serve gluten-free station that's going to be off here to the right if you want to participate that way. We'll also have um, bread, juice, and wine up in the balcony. Communion is open for all who claim the name of Jesus, who um, by grace want to live in his kingdom. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Um, Hey, instead of coming and taking communion, do business with God. Pray to him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. We have prayers in the front of the pews uh, that can help you do that. Um, And then just stay in your seat as the rest of us uh, take communion or uh, ask for prayer. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Uh, Communion servers will come forward. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to uh, respond to Jesus through communion. And again, yeah, if if you have, if someone in this room has something um, against you, if you need to ask for forgiveness, go do that. What do you have to lose? All right, let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you came to show us another way uh, to bring your kingdom uh, and to rescue us. Because, I mean, God, we're we're hopeless. Uh, We are stuck in our patterns of anger, cynicism, uh, contempt, and we need you to bring us out. Um, So, Spirit of God, I ask that you be present right now, uh, that you would speak loudly, that you would heal hearts, that you would heal relationships, and that you would uh, bring your kingdom here as it is in heaven. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come to the table when you're ready.